This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to episode two of the Firefighters Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Sarah. It was a busy week here in New York City. We had the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We also had the 47th annual FDNY vs. NYPD hockey game, which for the first time in its history aired live on ESPN2. Joining me this week will be retired New York City firefighter and former New York City police officer Joe Camerata. Joe bravely discusses what it was like for him to lose his brother and best friend Mike on 9-11. And my daughter Frankie will also tell you all how to make Mike's favorite firehouse meal. And for this week's roll call, we're going to start with the speech I gave the boys pregame Thursday night at Madison Square Garden. Let's go. When you guys go out there, think about Petey, who's had this on his mind for 20 years. Think about every guy who's put on that fucking jersey. Think about Ray, right? Think about your families. Think about each other. Fucking do it, man. Everyone's watching. Let's get a win. Got three minutes. I'll shut the fuck up. Let's go. With me today is my friend, former firefighter, former New York City police officer, current attorney, Joseph Camerata. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, you got it, man. Uh, In honor of your dual service, uh, as you can see behind me, I have both an NYPD and an FDNY hockey jersey hanging up. And I also have the cup with no name that the boys won on Thursday night at Madison Square Garden. You were there with me. Awesome game. Awesome game. Um, if, if you uh, haven't catched it yet, uh, caught it yet out there, it's still available on the ESPN app. So check it out, man. It was a great game. Um, all right. So I know 9-11 just passed and I don't want my whole show to be about 9-11, but I feel like, you know, uh, we'd be doing an injustice to you, your brother, and to really everyone out there to at least not tell Mike's story. Um, because when we say never forget, that's supposed to mean we never forget, right? That doesn't mean on September 12th every year, we just stop talking about it, right? So all my episodes aren't going to be about 9-11, obviously. But uh, this week, I wanted to focus on Mike. If you watched the game on ESPN, you probably saw uh, the little blip, uh, the five-minute piece they did. Uh, where I talked about Mike and uh, and our friendship and uh, what happened to him. But uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Joe here. Joe, let's start out with Mike. Um, Mike was a great athlete, right? So tell me what he was like as a kid. So Mike was a very uh, competitive athlete. Uh, he was 15 months younger than I, so we're only one grade apart. Played on many baseball teams and many hockey teams together. Um, he was He had a competitive spirit that I've never seen before. Uh, he was. In, we'll start with Little League Baseball. He was an amazing baseball player. Um, he played on the 1991 South Shore Little League 
uh, all-star team that made it to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And again, that league was in Staten Island. They made it to Williamsport, Pennsylvania in 1991. They placed uh, second in the country and third in the world. Uh, that was an amazing run played with some amazing athletes. Uh, two notable players that uh, he played one with was Jason Marquis was the starting pitcher for that all-star team. Went on to have a, a successful major league uh, career, uh, World Series uh, participant, uh, also an all-star in Major League Baseball. And he competed against Florida's governor, uh, who played for Florida in the 91 World Series, uh, DeSantis. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Right. Well, uh, so he also played against me in that yeah, tournament. Against, uh, the host of the show, the great host of the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I believe, uh, I believe you batted against um, Jason Marquette. Yeah, it didn't go very well. He struck me out on three pitches. Uh, there might have been a foul tip in there, but listen, I was 11, all right? I was a year younger, and he was throwing gas. So. Right, if you could make contact off of Jason Marquis when you were 11 years old, a future major leaguer, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. So, um, and just to talk about Little League Baseball for a second and Williamsport and that organization, um, after 9-11, Little League um, headquarters had found out that Mike was the youngest firefighter that died in 9-11 and that he was, they recalled that he was a 1991 participant in the series and president of Little League Baseball, Steve Keener, had reached out to my family about two months before, three months before the uh, one year anniversary and said, hey, look, um, you know, Michael was a competitor here. Uh, He paid the ultimate sacrifice on 9-11 as a firefighter. He embodied the Little League model of courage, character, and loyalty, and we want to enshrine him in the Little League Hall of Excellence. Um, So it would be an honor for us to do so. And in 2001, August of 2001, he was inducted into the Hall of Excellence alongside uh, Rudy Giuliani at the time. And um, in 2000, actually that was in 2002. In 2001, um, August of 2001, George Bush um, President George W. Bush was inducted into the Hall of Excellence just a few short weeks later, 9-11 happened. So then my brother and Rudy had followed the year after. My brother was the first uh, Posmus um, inductee into the Hall of Excellence. So they have never forgot. Um, I had recently received an email on the 11th from Steve Keener directly, who's still the CEO of Little League Baseball, um, sending his condolences. He never forgets a year. Um, on the fifth anniversary of 9-11, they had permanently retired Mike's number 11 in the right field wall of Lomity Stadium, which is the main stadium at Little League, uh, Little League World Series. Um, and again, my brother was a right fielder. He, his number in the World Series was 11, and he was very often the leadoff hitter in the series. So, you know, you look at the numbers, position nine, number 11, batting one. 9-11-01, and that's something that always resonated with them in the Hall of Excellence uh, and in the museum. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, it doesn't seem like a coincidence, right? I mean, there'd be, there'd be way too many. Yeah, I know. Experience. And then, you know, he was just as much as a competitor on the baseball diamond. He was that type of fierce competitor in the hockey rink. Um, you know, going throughout the years, uh, you know, and I, I know you had played with Mike, on the, um, the shark team that won the gold in Lake Placid, um, where essentially uh, 1980 U.S. Olympic team went on to win the gold and 
it beat Russia as well. Our new friend, Mike Ruzioni scored the game winning goal. And, uh, the, uh, the other night on Thursday night, uh, we made your son who's also named Mike, uh, the honorary captain of the FDNY. And he got to drop the puck with, uh, captain Mike Ruzioni, which was pretty cool. Right. Um, that was, an, that was an amazing night total gentlemen. Um, you know, my son, the fire department, and, and I got to thank you, Rob, um, you know, you are a leading cause of why Mike uh, became an honorary member of the team. Um, you know, you and Mike were both set to try out on September 11, 2001. Uh, my brother was working that morning and being that he was a new probationary firefighter only in the firehouse about eight or nine weeks, he decided, hey, I'll make the next hockey tryout. I don't want to ask for the time off, although without a doubt, you and I both know, they would have gave him the day off for the hockey team and he would have made that shift up another day. But he decided to work and uh, that, you know, that pulled him into the uh, the Trade Center. And, and again, thank you again for many years later, always remembering Mike, making him an honorary member of the team, remembering us on the 20th anniversary, you and the hockey team, making my son, Michael, who is 10 years old, the honorary captain of the FDNY hockey team on the 20th anniversary game in front of a sold out Madison Square Garden uh, uh, arena. You know, my son is very in touch with what happened that day. He always wonders about his uncle. Um, you know, he always wants to know more. And, you know, that day really gave him an insight into who he was, you know, to, to see his uncle on the Jumbotron telling his story, to see you and him winning in Lake Placid and playing together, to hear your words about the kind of competitor Mike was and what it would have meant to him to be on the team. My son is still talking about it days later and has asked me, Dad, when are we doing that again? You know, I mean, <laughs> so meet Mike Ruzioni, who was such a pivotal part of the 1918 when there was a Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR and to have pulled off a miracle. It was that day, you know, to have him there to drop the puck um, and to be a part of that ceremony and what that game really meant. It was not just a hockey game, you know, but I mean, I know it's a game that's been played since the sixties or the seventies um, over 40 years. Uh, that was a game to say, Hey, we never forget. It's 20 years later. We're not forgetting 343 firefighters, 23 police officers, 37 Port Authority, and almost 3,000 civilians that died that day. We're always going to remember and, and, and to make, to have myself in attendance, my son in attendance, my dad in attendance. It was an amazing thing. And we got to thank you for that. Always remembering. Thank you. Well, yeah. I mean, one of my lasting memories is, is Mike was a big reason why I was going to try out that day in the first place because I didn't know anybody and I, I hadn't, you know, I've talked about it before, but I took some time off from hockey uh, after my mother passed. And the only reason I was going is because I was planning on meeting Mike there. You know, I was like, at least I'm going to know somebody. Um, he obviously would have made the team. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I think how could we not, you know, one of the big things about nine 11 to me is not just what happened, but what didn't happen. You know, what didn't happen to Mike is he didn't get to live the rest of his life, right? He didn't get to go try out the next week. Um, you know, that's when we say never forget. We also, there, my wife said it beautifully. She said, I, I miss things that never even happened um, when she talks about her dad. And it's true, you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys had a good night. Just um, thinking back to that, things that never happened and, and, you know, 
when he played in high school, he was a defenseman. He likely would have tried out for this team as a defenseman, but he was a very offensive defenseman. Like he could be in the defensive play and then go end to end with the puck. And when he was a senior in high school, uh, he as a defenseman, he won the scoring title. He was the first defenseman ever to win the New York Ice Hockey Association scoring title. I think to date, I ask every year, and there's never been another defenseman to do it. So that's the type of special soul that we all missed out on. Like what it, what would it have been like for you to play? I know you have played with Mike and I have played with Mike, but what would it have been for you to play with Mike on that team? What would he have done on that team? You know, he might've inspired me. And again, I played my whole life as well to, Hey, put the skates back on try out for this team. And you know what, if you don't make it, I'm going to break your chops the rest of your life relentlessly. <laughs> or if you do make it, we'll, it'll be like the old days in high school and yeah, beyond. Right. So it's like, we missed all of that. You know, things yeah. would be a lot that didn't yeah i you know those those uh six years i played on the team were the, the best of my life you know don't tell my uh wife that but um yeah it was amazing uh you were on the team the first win that they had in quite a few years after 9-11 yeah and i remember watching the game and, and you scored the game winning goal and you know did i <laughs> <laughs> i forgot <laughs> You better not be gay. <laughs> it's on there. It's on this side. Right. And you know what? You better not forget, especially on a show that's about never forget. Right. So just to just to think, like, getting back to what your wife had said, what would things have been like? Like, what would he have said to you after the game? Like, it could be something as small as that, you know? Yeah. What would he have to do after the game when, when you were the reason that, you know, the game concluded in favor of the FD, like? What would the party have been like after the game? I mean, he would have, you know, he would have been, been in the mix. <laughs> so, you followed in Mike's footsteps, right? You were a police officer on 9 11. Um, I would like for you to talk to, about that a little bit, if you don't mind, um, about your experiences that day, um, what it was like knowing that your brother was there. So just uh, give us a rundown of, of what you experienced. You were a police officer. What were you in Staten Island Task Force, I believe? Uh, so Staten Island Task Force at the time. So getting back to the competitiveness, Mike was super competitive. Younger brother, better athlete. I'll admit it, better athlete. Always pushed me to be better. Uh, there were certain times when he made all-star teams and that I didn't make, and he was the motivation for me to work harder. It was no different when we studied for the fire department test. Mike was motivating me to do better on the written test, better on the physical test. He scored a perfect score of 100 on the written, 100 on the physical. I got one question wrong on the, the written. I got a 98.5, and I got 100 on the physical. His list number on the job was 345. My list number was 1298. So for one question, it put me back over 950 names sure. on the list. Now, I, I just want to explain, he actually had the same answers that I had because we were able, if you recall, to take uh, – the sheet away, like you could write your answers down manually and then check it against the newspaper that came out a month later and see what your score was before the official results came out. Right. And I think it was question 33 or 34. And I had B and it was wrong. He had B and then changed it to C. And he wrote his own destiny. Now that's how competitive we were. We had the same wrong answer. He took it one step further and corrected. He wrote his own destiny. That wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been at the trade center if he left his answer the same. No, by changing his answer, he wrote his own destiny. So that led us to 9/11. He was he was a, a, a firefighter at the time, uh, working in Ladder Company 11. Um, I was a police officer, a rookie police officer. I had just over two years on the job. 
I was working at Staten Island Task Force, which was like a mobile response and disorder control unit that would go to certain things like a plane crash or like a riot. Um, so the morning of September 11th, it was about 8.46 a.m. First tower got hit. I was driving my car on the way to work. My shift started at 9.30 in the morning. So it was about 8.45, I was on my way. Um, I was playing a CD in the car, so I didn't have the radio on. And I got a phone call on my cell phone from my partner that said, Joe, the World Trade Center got hit by an airplane. I said, all right, it's probably some pilot had a heart attack, Cessna, helicopter, how bad could it be? He goes, we're probably gonna go. I said, all right, no problem, I'm on my way in. I get a phone call two minutes later, it was my fiance at the time. She's like, the World Trade Center got hit by an airplane. I told her, listen, don't expect me. We're probably gonna be working overtime tonight. It sounds like it's a, it's, it's something big's going on there. So, you know, my, my drive to work was about 30 minutes. About 15 minutes later, my partner calls me back in an absolute panic. Joe, the World Trade Center got hit by a second an airplane. I'm watching the two buildings on fire. And Staten Island Task Force, our unit was directly across the Hudson on the Staten Island side. So we had a clear, unobstructed view of the tower. So I remember pulling in the parking lot and seeing these buildings on fire and running and everything was in slow motion. He was just staring out there like, like a zombie, like what is happening? So we all got dressed. We headed over to the uh, uh, Staten Island Ferry because bridges were closed, roadways were closed, tunnels yep. were closed, all access into Manhattan. And, and we would have to go through Staten Island to Brooklyn, into Manhattan. Our captain said, we're heading to the ferry. We'll take the boat over, put all the cop cars, any EMS, any fire personnel, any fire equipment, and we're just going to go across. So we were packed shoulder to shoulder on that boat, EMS, fire, police, civilians, anybody that could help. And we started to head over. And as we started to head over, it's a five mile journey between Staten Island and Manhattan. And as we were about halfway, we had, it was a beautiful day. It was crystal clear. You see the two towers on fire. As soon as we made it to about the halfway point, one of the towers was just gone. So we didn't see it as all the people who may have been tuning into TV who saw the building come down like this. Right. It was two buildings right. and all of a sudden one was gone. We're like, what, what, what's happening here? And at that moment, I knew Mike was a rookie fireman. He was working that day. And I don't know if it was a brotherly instinct, uh, but I knew at that point he was gone. And, you know, Mike and I look very much alike, although he was the better looking kind. That's the better looking one. Everybody else say. We look very much alike. We had the same friends. We were very close in age. People referred to us that we were twins. So when I looked out at the World Trade Center, what people referred to as the Twin Towers, and I seen that first tower fall, it, it was it was almost an awakening or something that my brother, my twin had fell at the same time. And I just knew he was gone. Um, so that morning he was working a lot of company 11. Um, he was in an engine 28 ladder 11. I believe engine 28 responded to the world trade center at 855 AM ladder 11 didn't respond to the second or first fifth alarm, which was at 908 in the morning at 855 in the morning, my brother called my father. And as we all know, cell phones were not working in the area. Nothing could get through, but he got the voicemail from the landline in the, in the firehouse. And he said, Dad, the World Trade Center got hit by an airplane. Tell everybody on my right, we're going to be going. And that was at 8.55. At 9.08, his company got dispatched. So by the time he got dispatched at 9.08, that was five minutes after the second tower, my brother um, had known, just like you have known, I'm sure, and everybody else had known that America was under attack. And, you know, I had thoughts in my mind that on the ferry, is there more planes coming? Are we going to get there? You know, and is it going to be uh, 
Are there more buildings that are going to get hit? So, you know, we're, we're heading across, and then the ferry boat captain, about halfway after the first building came down, the ferry boat captain decided, I'm going to stop the ferry. I don't know if it's safe to pull into Manhattan. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if the ferry terminal is even operable at this point because it was pretty close proximity to the World Trade Center, although it's it was unlikely it was damaged. He didn't know. He, he erred on the side of, of, of caution. Um, and again, my captain had ran up there, members of police, member of fire, members of EMS, as you can understand, were like, wanted to get there. We wanted to yeah. go. And as the two minutes, four minutes, six minutes, 10 minutes. Now it starts getting into like, now it's like a, a little mob is forming, like move this boat, let's get to the trade center. Right. It wasn't until about 10 or 15 minutes after that the boat started to go. And then we, we ended up getting into Manhattan, pulling off in our vans and cop cars and emergency uh, uh, vehicles. And we made the left to go to the World Trade Center. And that's when World Trade, um, the North Tower had collapsed. And when the North Tower had collapsed, it was 10, 28 in the morning. Um, you know, we were there, but we were obstructed from getting there. And, uh, you know, we had an assignment and my captain, we were going, we were going to the base of the World Trade Center to see where we were needed. And uh, it wasn't until a couple of years later when I started to think about the scenario. If that ferry boat captain didn't stop that boat, my parents may have had two funerals, one for each son. And, you know. <sighs> Absolutely. Right. Because you guys had to hear the chatter on the radio. Uh, or the screaming and the, and the, uh, the reports, of what was going on had to be frustrating. We were, um, we were all at that point, we were directed to tune into off the Staten Island channel and into citywide and citywide was all the police communications that were going on citywide, which was everybody stay off the air, except what's going on at the world trade center. And I gotta be honest. Man. Moira Smith was the female police officer that was killed. Um, the only female police officer killed that day. <clears throat> when that first building came down, we heard Moira Smith trapped and gasping for air and incoherent and asking for help. And nobody could help her. And she eventually died. So to hear that, and then to hear other cops when the towers were coming down, screaming at the top of their lungs that the towers were coming down. Was something that was something I never want to relive ever again. And, you know, it's 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 got to be talked about, but it's uh, it was definitely uh, it was definitely a tough thing. And, you know, and at that point, I just knew, you know, he was he was going to be he was going to be gone. Yeah, that, that had to be tough to hear on the radio. Um, so you stayed there for the rest of the day or did, did your uh, boss figure out what, what happened to your brother and kind of pull you to the side? Or Right. So, you know, what we all saw on TV, and again, I know you were there, so this doesn't apply to you, but what most people saw on TV who weren't down there, it was a lot different than what it was down there. Right? You know, we were originally trying to find our way to the trade center, but the way that those buildings had fallen, it created like a debris field of like a circular or rectangular debris field that you couldn't really get to the site. So, you know, at that point we were directed by uh, chiefs and commissioners to there's a staging area under the Manhattan bridge. You're going to stage there until we tell you what we need to do until we figure out what we need to do. And that was a couple of hours going by. And I was trying to reach my brother. I was trying to reach my parents. You couldn't get through to anybody. And I'm knowing he's not, things are not okay. 
And I remember there was a path mark there, and we were told to go into path mark and just take everything that you think could be utilized up there. And there were just shopping carts of going in and taking supplies, 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 loading up the vans and just waiting. And then it got to a point where I couldn't wait no more. And I, I told my captain, like, I need to go up there. My brother's up there. He's missing. I've heard from him. And he was like, wait, wait, this is direct order. We need to stay here. We're going to eventually get there. We're going to do our part. We're going to get there. We tried to. You know, we can't get there. We're waiting to figure out what's going to go on. And I just was like, listen, I'm going. He said, if you go, you're suspended. I said, honestly, you have to do what you have to do, but so do I. I took off my badge. I took off my shirt. I took off my gun belt. And I made my way up to the World Trade Center site. Um, and I went with, uh, and, and my partner, Jerome Crimi at the time, he was begging to come with me. The captain's like, he can go, but you're definitely suspended. If he goes, he goes alone. And then the, the Staten Island trustee, Richie Rodriguez had went up there with me and we were climbing over debris and we couldn't see, it was snowing in our eyes. It was burning our eyes. We couldn't breathe. We had no masks. Every time we were breathing, it felt like razor blades going in our lungs. And it was somewhere around like 5.30 at night, we were across from World Trade Center 7 and there were huddles of firemen all over the place, just like off-duty guys. You were probably in one of the the, the huddles. I, I, I couldn't even tell who was there. There were so many firemen trying to huddle. And I just remember seeing the destruction, burning cop cars, crushed fire trucks, flipped over fire trucks, EMS vehicles on fire, sludge, the soot developed into sludge that was you know, eight to 10 inches deep, fire hydrants broken, water all over the place, snowing. And I remember hearing the sounds muffled under the debris of the pass alarms and the pass alarms are attached to the Scott pack. And the Scott pack is the fireman's air supply, which it's likely a 45 minute pack, but it's really only like 20 minutes or 22 minutes of air. And if you remain motionless, you would hear a slow screeching building up, building up, building up until it's a full out screech and an alarm. And I remember hearing hundreds of those muffled deep under the debris. And I just remember thinking to myself that indicated hundreds of rescue workers trapped to death. And I just, I was walking around to these huddles. Has anybody seen engine 28 ladder 11? Has anybody seen Mike Camerata? Where's ladder 11? Where's engine 28? Not no people just looking at me like we, nobody has any idea what's happening right now. You know, it was fear that there was over a thousand firemen that were killed. Um, and I just remember this one old fireman. Um, he was, he had to be retired. It looked like his bunker gear. He had like the jean bunker gear from like 70s or 80s. He came yeah. to, you know, retirement to head down and help. And, and I just remember him saying like, this is a grave situation and nobody's going to make it. And I remember another fireman saying, this building here is going to come down and it was world trade seven. And I'm not kidding with you within two minutes, the ground started to shake and I was across from seven and seven started to come down and the twisting girders and steel and the screeching and everybody is running and screaming. And I'm with Richie Rodriguez and I'm running and running and I'm hearing debris crashing. And I make a left near century 21. And I look back and Richie's not with me. So now I'm, thinking like, did Richie get killed? And as I'm running and I'm hearing all this crashing of debris, stuff is flying all over. I'm saying, what if I get killed now? What if Mike's alive? What did I do? And making the left and he's not with me. And then I saw a cop on duty near Trinity Church. And I said, look, I'm a police officer. I need your radio. I need to call my unit. And he's like, I don't know who you are. You're not wearing a uniform. You're not getting my radio. And I just remember grabbing the radio from him and calling a 1085, which is officer needs assistance at that location. And that seven just came down. And then my unit came and got me.
And that's 9-11 in a nutshell. I mean, I wish it never happened and I wish we weren't talking about this, but. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, you, you just made me think of something when you brought up the Paris alarms because I had a very hard time hearing Paris alarms for the rest of my career after that. Uh, it just brought, brought me right back there because that's all we heard for days, right? Until the batteries died. Uh, those things went off, it seemed like, forever. And anytime I heard one, even if it was at a drill or the guy's checking the rig, you know, it might just be a quick trigger and I would just instantly go back there in my mind. It was... All right. I and, you know, and I know we're still dealing with some of the physical effects after 9-11 20 years later and for many, many years to come, but like the mental effects are just as important. And, you know, to even sit here and think about it or, you know, when I went on to the job, you know, 9-11 happens, um, you know, and then I went over to uh, FD in January of 2002 I remember even being in the fire academy, hearing it, learning about these pass alarms, learning about these things. And it's just like it pulls you right back. You know, and then you could start thinking about it. You could start smelling what it was like down there. You could start thinking about what happened down there. You know, it's a it's a it's a tough thing to deal with. Um, what about when you started going to fires? I, that's I always want to ask you this question. When you went to your first like real job, you know, when you you're on your way there and you're hearing fire blowing out the windows on the radio. You know, maybe you got the nozzle and you're, you're getting all pumped up. Was there any hesitation? Like, did you think of Mike at all? Were you like, oh shit, or did you just just get in the zone? You know, I didn't have hesitation because I knew other people were relying on me. And I was just, I was a lot younger than I am now. And, you know, I just wanted to get in there and do what I had to do. But, you know, sometimes uh, I believe my first company I went to, Nozzle, would sit, I mean, the rigs would be five men six man six seats right to the uh, the chauffeur and the and the lieutenant and then in the back compartment it was two seats on each side and when we were five man engines there used to be five but i had went to a four man engine at the time and then there was uh um my first nozzle job, I was on the side by myself. And I remember they were like knocking, like as we were going, it was like, you know, came over phone alarm, multiple phone alarms, fire at this location. I had the nozzle, they're knocking, they're knocking on the window in between the divider in between the front and the back saying, right. you see smoke, smell smoke. We got a job. And I see you, I see your face and you know what I'm talking about. You yeah. know that feeling. You just know. And I remember looking across and seeing an empty seat thinking my brother is sitting there right now, geared up get up and he's gonna get my back and that's what it was about and then you know it was i did between police and fire about six six and a half years on the job and i did about four as fire and i could tell you this every time we went and every time you know every fireman knows the difference when a fire truck goes down the block whether it's going to an ems run or going to a car accident you could tell by the sirens and the horns what type of job it is or what type of urgency is behind it. But when you hear those horns blaring incessantly, you know that it's a fire. And coincidentally, uh, to this day, my, my, my law office is down the block from squad eight. And every now and again, you hear them going out and they, I could tell when they go out and they're blaring the horns, what they're going to. And it, it, it pulls you back. It pulls you back to the days of being on the job and the days of nine 11. Um, Absolutely. I think, I think there's something that goes through all of our minds when we hear the sirens go by, you know, especially during the pandemic when it seemed like it was nonstop, right? It was like, you know, where I was in Staten Island, it, it, it was all day long, uh, sirens right. going by. couldn't hear anything else. There was nobody else on the road except right. responding. Yeah, and I could, from my house, I could hear the tone alarms going off at the firehouse down the block. Uh, right. You know, 
That's Which we would have never heard if there was no pandemic, right? Right, because there'd be traffic, you know, the schools would be full of kids and whatever else happens in Staten Island. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, but yeah, man. But I got to say, the fact that you still took the job after what happened to Mike uh, says a lot about you and your character. Um, you know, so, you, may not, you know, yeah. Go ahead, man. I, I, I don't want to cut you off. No, I was just going to say that. So, that Oh, here we are again. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Let me hear you. You go. Post first. I was just gonna say that there's something heroic in that, man. That's that's what that's what heroism is 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 knowing the dangers um, and doing it anyway. Uh, and also, I wanted to stress, you know, I like to stress positivity on my show. Um, we heard from the Nav last week, who's who's a very positive person. But if if you're watching this. If you look behind Joe, you could see all his degrees and, you know, Joe might've stopped. He might've been unable to work, but that didn't mean he stopped living and stopped, uh, stopped getting after it. And you could see that he put himself through law school. Um, I don't know how many other degrees you got back there. Um, also there's a picture of Joe back there, which I believe is from people magazine, but Joe was also in the firefighters calendar. Um, I knew that was going to come up. Uh, I don't know if we'll find any pictures, but maybe we can uh, maybe we can attach some on the website. But uh, tell me about that experience. I always wondered about that. You know. Well, look again. The motivation behind the calendar was Mike. All right, Mike was so into physical fitness. It's something that he was like, "We're doing this. We're doing this together." You know, he he didn't just he didn't he he want we wanted to be firemen since we were little kids wearing firemen underwear and you know underoos everything was firemen going to the firemen and police hockey games since we were little kids, and but he he wanted the full experience he wanted to play hockey he wanted to be in the calendar he wanted to do everything that he could and it's it's a shame that he didn't get the opportunity but we wanted to do these things together, um, so one of the things was I did it in honor of him and, and quite frankly I was I was totally out of shape when I went in the fire academy after 9/11. You know, sitting home, waiting for the phone calls. The police department assigned me to my family so I could be with them. Uh, that was my that was my job every day to be with my family. And, I, you know, I put on a lot of weight. I put on 20 or 30 pounds. I went to the fire academy and I was very out of shape. And I remember in the fire academy, you know, those instructors who knew my brother very well and how physically fit it was, they pulled me. They didn't even pull me to the side. They said it in front of 150 other people in the academy. This is my camarada's brother. And he came here unprepared. And they didn't do it in, in, in a malice way. They did it in a way to motivate me. And they said his brother was one of the most fit candidates and took it the most serious. And I took it to heart. And let me tell you something, that motivated me to get in shape. And, you know, the, the fire department has two slogans. One slogan is fitness for life. The other slogan is uh, let no man's ghost come back to say my training let me down. And I took both of those very serious when they told me that. And in honor of my brother, I got back into shape. And I lived with, with, with the, with the regimen of eating right and stick, sticking to the, the muscular endurance exercises. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it because if he couldn't do it, I'm going to do it for him. I'm going to do it for us. And I trained hard. And I remember going, <laughs> going to the, the FDNY calendar tryouts at Metro tech shirtless. I don't even know if you're allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> and then they would give you a tool and then you would, you know, you would pose and this and that. And then a couple of weeks later, I got the phone call that you're in. Um, and at the time I was working at engine 54 in um, midtown Manhattan. So one of the locations that came up from the calendar were, Hey, look, we have a midtown Manhattan. We're going to do a nighttime photo in times square. So the other 12 guys, I was like, you know, we were all very friendly. I was like, well, I got times square. 
because I work there. I want that. I want Times Square. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, you got it. You got it. So we took the photo in Times Square. And at the time, there was a, an olive garden on the first floor. And the second floor, there was like the, or like eight floors up. There was a balcony. I remember sitting on the rail and taking it with Times Square in the background. Um, so it was, it was it was an experience and a half. I mean, I met a lot of interesting people at the calendar signings. Um, and when I was at 54 out of four, uh, you know, my helmet was in the photo. So I would get visitors from time to time. And some of them would come from five boroughs. Some would come from New Jersey, visiting yeah. from California, across the seas. And it was, I met some really cool people. And, you know, it was for a good cause. It wasn't just, hey, I'm in the fire calendar. You're raising money for fire prevention. And the money you raise from sales of calendars were given back to educate people about fire prevention and provide smoke detectors and pay it forward in a way that, you know, was bigger than us. Right. And it also gave the guys in the kitchen a little uh, fuel, <laughs> fuel for the ball breaking, right? I, I can't tell you how many places I've seen that photo. I've seen that photo <laughs> on everything from refrigerators. Like, if you want to look like this guy, do not midnight snack to <laughs> in the fire, in the firehouse bathrooms, uh, you know, place strategically next to the, <laughs> the urinal. But they were all in, in good fun. And you know what? They used to break my chops about it. But at the end of the day, when they, when, when the girls would come to 54 and 4 and wanted to sign T-shirts or sign calendars, they would always call me and be like, you got to talk to them. Let's go. Let's go. It was a good time. Listen, I, I met a lot of good people uh, because of that and also on the job and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. So, if- viewers, don't hold it against me. I'm not in calendar ready shit. I have a 15-year-old daughter, and she told me very recently, she goes, I can't believe we're in the FDNY calendar. She goes, you know what we need to do? Let's get all of those guys from the 2005 calendar and have a 15th anniversary calendar. Let's see what you all look like. <laughs> the regular guy calendar. Yeah, exactly. I believe he, had, he gets that from my brother. You had a little less shine on the top too back then. Oh, I had the, yeah, I had the, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, man, I got to tell you, I really appreciate it. I know that we're all done talking about 9-11. Um, you know, I, at least for me on, on September 12th, I'm ready to stop talking about it for a while, but I'm glad you took the time. I think the people out there need to hear stories like yours. Um, I'm glad. I want to thank you for making my spirit live on. And what I mean by that is this after nine 11, my mother found a note that was in my brother's uh, nightstand because we were told, Hey, look, you got to look for combs, toothbrushes in, for DNA. If we got to identify him, we can't, we can't identify him. So my mother found this note that said, if anything was ever to happen to me, she opened it up and said, one, take care of Jenna, which was his girlfriend of many years said two, don't mourn me. This is the career I chose three, make my spirit live on. And four, remember, I love you all. I'll be waiting for you upstairs. Sign Michael Camerata, badge 1138, undated. We don't know when he wrote it, um, but men in his firehouse that had 25 years on the job and he was only 22 said, we're fine and long and he's alive. Wouldn't have the courage to write that. But the most important thing that became my life mission was making a spirit live on, running into people like you who knew Mike, who have this podcast. You've always done the right thing by my family. You've always helped make his spirit live on. I want to thank you for that. And all the viewers out there are listening. And if you could tell the story about Mike and tell the story about 9-11, you're helping his last wish to make his spirit live on. And for that, I'm grateful, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. And, and and you can look up stories about Mike. Maybe we'll share the link. Uh, I know ESPN did a great story about his Little League World Series. Uh, you know, there's also the link from the game. Um, and I might be putting up some other videos uh, from Thursday night for the people to check out. Um, awesome. But yeah, man, you know, it sucks what happened to Mike. But uh, one, good thing, one good thing that came out of it is you and I got to be good friends. Uh, so... 
you know, if you're looking for positivity, you know, it's hard to find it in a day like 9-11, but, you know, good things can come, can come out of bad things also. So thanks, dude. I don't want to take up any much more of your time, but uh, check out Joe. Joe also has a book he wrote about Mike called The Face of Courage. You can check that out. And, uh, you know, we'll bring Joe back on sometime soon, all right? All right. Thanks for having me, Rob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Frankie's Firehouse Feast. Today, we are making Nanny Sunday sauce with meatballs. In a large pot, pour in the extra virgin olive oil and onions. Have the tomato cans open and ready to saute the onions until translucent. Add the garlic and allow to saute for about one to two minutes. Be sure not to let the garlic burn. Add the can of crushed tomatoes. Add Parmesan cheese, handful. One fourth cup of sugar. Salt and pepper to taste. Small handful of parsley. Bring to a boil, but not rapidly. Once boiling, lower the heat. Cook with the same cover half on. Simmer for about one and a half hours, stirring often. Make sure you scrape the bottom of the pot when stirring. While the sauce is cooking, get the meatballs ready. In a large bowl, add the grounds meat, eggs, Parmesan cheese, and breadcrumbs. Add parsley, salt, pepper, and garlic powder to taste. Carefully mix all of the ingredients with washed hands until well combined. Shape into a one and a half to two inch round balls. Brown each side in a frying pan. Once the salt is shimmered for one and a half hours, add the browned meatballs to the sauce. Cook on low-medium heat for at least another hour with the cover half on stirring often. Don't forget to scrape the bottom. Manja! Uh, last year, we, we entered Mike into our uh, alumni uh, hall of uh, Ring of Honor, and I'd like to present Big Mike with his uncle's jersey. Whoa. That presentation took place in the locker room Thursday night before the game. It was my privilege and my honor to present Mike's family with his jersey. I remember how great it felt to get handed my FDNY jersey for the first time, and it's really just another moment that Mike missed out on. I want to thank Joe for coming on. I know it's not easy to talk about 9-11. I don't take those questions lightly. But I think it's important. If we really mean to never forget, then we got to tell these stories, right? I know that every time Joe has to tell that story, he's sacrificing a piece of himself again. But I also know that he wants to make Mike's spirit live on. Mike may have died tragically, but he lived triumphantly. And it's all right if we focus on that. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Frankie and Linda for another great episode. If you haven't seen the game yet, check out Hockey Heroes on the ESPN app. You won't be disappointed. If you haven't subscribed yet, go to thefirefighters.us or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm also happy to say that we're now on Patreon, so you can go to patreon.com slash thefirefighterspodcast. I know it's been a long week, especially for those of us in the fire service. I want everybody to take a breath get some rest, and as always, stay low, my friends. May we never forget. Forget.